the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This episode of Magic Markets is brought to you by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, South Africa's leading provider of alternative investment funds and co-investment strategies. With over 8 billion rand in assets under management across South Africa, the UK and the USA, Westbrook provides South African high net worth individuals, wealth managers and institutions with a unique gateway to the world of alternative investments. This includes private debt, hybrid capital, real estate, private equity and venture capital. Visit westbrook.co.za to find out more. Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 46750. Before we start this fantastic episode of Magic Markets, I do need to tell you that the contents of this podcast are for information purposes only and they do not constitute investment advice, nor do they represent a solicitation of any member of the public to invest in any security. The investment vehicles managed by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management are available to qualified or sophisticated investors only. All listeners should seek professional financial advice prior to making any investment. Welcome to episode 103 of Magic Markets. I must just have a uh, quick little statistical reference here. Mo, we've gone through 200,000 downloads since we launched Magic Markets, which I think is Pretty cool. And uh, I was checking out some stats today and noticed that. So congrats, mate. It's been a very good journey with you to do this. And I'm glad we're doing it. And we've got lots more to do. And I suppose to celebrate that and most importantly to talk about some really cool insights into alternative investing. We have Dino Zuccolo from Westbrook. If you've been listening to Magic Markets for a while, you've gotten to know the Westbrook team. He's just been traveling to the US. So Mo, I'll start with you because we know Dino's just had a bit of your time time zone issue. So he might still be slightly jet lagged. We'll find out now. But how are you doing there in Canada? Yeah, Ghost, always a pleasure doing this with you. And yeah, just super, super excited. Over 200,000 downloads. That's a, that's a proper milestone for us. Uh, 103 episodes if we count this one. And in Magic Markets Premium, you know, we've covered I would say almost, what, 10% of the S&P 500. So if we wrap all of that up, it's been very busy. It's been pretty exciting and uh, just really excited to share our learnings in that process, in all of all that we do with our listeners uh, and with our subscribers in Magic Markets Premium as well. So congratulations, I guess, to you as well, Ghost. It's uh, It's been a good journey. Uh, and now I'm happy to welcome Dino Zuccolo on the show because we get to chat about some interesting information and insights that we found in, in their space, as well as some of the insights he's gleaned from his recent trip to the US. Dino, welcome to Magic Markets. Uh, good evening, gents, and congratulations. 200,000. It's, uh, it's a big number, but I'm pretty sure it's, uh, we'll turn around in a year's time and it'll be a small number. That would be nice. Dino, you've just been in the US, which I hope is a first world country because Canada apparently is not. Mo just complains about trying to find medicine, trying to find snow tires. Sounds quite tough up there. Down here, we, we know what's going to happen to us. We just don't have electricity for half the day. But beyond that, we have meds, we have tires, we have all these things. And 
I think some of that might come through in, you know, there's one question in this, this survey that you've done around local versus offshore, and it's quite interesting to see the results on that. But before we get into that, walk us through this survey that you've done as Westbrook around alternative investments. Who were the respondents? How did you think about it? And why have you done it? Yeah, so guys, look, I think what were we trying to achieve is yourself, myself and Mo had a chat offline ahead of this episode and, and brainstormed a couple of ideas around some of the things we wanted to discuss. And the one topic that stuck with me was how do alternatives fit into wider client portfolios um, in the greater scheme of things? But also, I suppose if you look at Westbrook's business, we've really got two types of clients. There's a direct client who for us is sort of an ultra high net worth individual in a family office, who are kind of people who manage their own money inherently. And then aside from that, the very large uh, base is through wealth managers, right? So our business is not yet institutional. Um, you know, maybe in time we'll go there, but at the moment, very much a, a high net worth and individual funded business, either through wealth managers or direct. And we were looking to try and understand how our wealth manager base are looking at alternatives uh, for their clients. So what we did is we put together a survey. We tried to keep it brief such that people actually answered it. I'm very pleased to say that we got 64 individual wealth management businesses who completed the survey, which uh, we really appreciate. Um, and so I suppose the point of the discussion today is really to try and unpack uh, a different element of alternatives. We talk about the products and I'm very comfortable to talk to you about the products. I'm not an expert on, on wealth management, right? I'm, I'm not an expert on how one optimally constructs a wider investment portfolio, but our wealth partners are. And so it's very exciting to be able to talk through some of their views on the world. I know you guys have had a look at the results and uh, hopefully those listening to the podcast find it interesting too. Maybe you'll learn something. Yeah, I mean, do you know the, the interesting thing, and I'm, I'm going to kind of jump in here, right? Because I kind of look at things from, from a macro perspective. So almost more a comment before we go into some of the, the nitty gritty, some of the detail. I mean, you've, you've said, you know, Westbrook plays in the private client space. That's where you've operated thus far. But even in the institutional space where I, for example, have a lot of clients, you've actually seen this rise of alternatives. And, you know, that's come through in, in several verticals. I think the institutional world in many respects almost kind of led in, you know, the foray into hedge funds and then the foray kind of beyond that into private equity. Uh, for example, now, you know, seeing a lot of activity around, you know, private debt. I think private debt has become so important in a world where investors are hungry. They're searching for yield. They're also searching for capital growth and they're not necessarily finding the right kind of risk reward trade-offs in, in listed markets. So, a kind of a macro trend there. It's something that we've certainly seen across capital markets is this overarching, you know, push into alternatives. And and maybe just a starting off point from a macro perspective, not so much in the in the kind of the survey that we performed. How much of activity do you see on both sides of that equation? And what I mean when I say this is you kind of go in, you take the investments, you put them on balance sheet, you invest, but there's also an exit side of things. Are you seeing the exit side of things? Is it too early to try and address some of that before we go into the nitty gritty of you know, how clients are seeing this in their portfolios? Uh, and the reason I ask it is if we're seeing that, are you selling to, for example, institutional managers? Is this finding its way into pension funds? That's really where I'm going with this question. Mm. So, I mean, so many points to unpack on that, Mo. I think just the first thing, 
You're 100% right. Institutions have led many of the forays into alternatives. However, there are quite a few differences between an institutional investor and an individual investor. And like just without going into too much detail on it to highlight some of them, institutions are very big by definition. And so one of their most important things is, is the ability to scale. They want to do investments that can be scalable and meaningful for big funds. One of the challenges of alternatives is that they're very difficult to scale because finding a lot of deals to do in alternatives is hard. So they tend to gravitate to the asset classes that are easier to scale, things like infrastructure, which you'll see there's much more institutional uptake for. And, and that actually comes through in the results of the survey relative to high net worth demand. Also, their cost of capital is lower and you know they don't really have an exit horizon for their investments because institutionals are almost like permanent capital vehicles. So when you construct a fund or an offering that works for an institution, um, quite different to what you would do for an ultra high net worth individual or private client, it's a little bit more focused on generating a higher return, wanting to know when they're going to get their money out, etc. On the exit side of things, Mo, we as a business have not yet been in the world of secondaries, right? So we haven't yet really been in the world of selling like like LP interests in our funds to other investors as a means to exit clients. We've far more been in the world of actually exiting the underlying investments. Um, it is sort of the holy grail, which is that in time, when you get to a point where you can create what's referred to as a permanent capital vehicle, which is a vehicle where you don't actually ever have to give the money back at the deal level. It's incredibly powerful for your ability to, to invest well and to invest differently from a behavioral perspective. Um, you know, we still, because our high net worths want the ability to exit, we're exiting the underlying deals. So from our perspective, uh, deal flow is very much contingent upon the industry you're playing in, the market you're playing in, and the asset class you're playing in. So, so I think that's such an important point because it also talked to some of the points we're going to unpack in the survey now, which is the psychology and the time horizons between private clients and institutions are fundamentally different. So you know, I'm going to let Ghost jump in here because I know we had a question to come in with as we kick through some of the results of the survey. Yeah, so the first question, Dino, was all about you know which types of alternative assets these wealth managers are making use of for clients. And from what I can see, there were three that sort of came out as, as equally popular. There were a couple of very left field answers like crypto, dun, 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 but we'll leave that one alone. So I'll let you, to I'll let you talk through, uh, you know, which ones came out as being popular and, and was that a surprise for you or was that in line with what you expected? Yeah. So, and, and maybe Ghost, before we get into this, what, what I must caveat about the survey is that we asked the wealth managers who we know, right? And, and that's just, it's very important because inherently you're going to get responses from people who understand alternatives and who know the offerings. So I'm not, in some instances, these answers might be skewed more in favor of alternatives than what you might find if you spoke to generally external wealth managers who'd, who'd never come across Westbrook. But certainly here, the response was that the three most popular alternatives that are used for clients are private debt, hedge funds, and structured products. Um, if you go down the list, sort of moderately used are private equity, venture capital, real estate. And then further down the list are things like infrastructure, which, are, as I've mentioned, makes sense because it's more institutionally funded, uh, and hybrid capital. Now, now, two things that jump out to me immediately there uh, are that, first of all, I was surprised that private debt was up there. Uh, historically, the alternatives that I would say have re received wide-scale adoption are 
definitely hedge funds and structured products, which are very popular amongst a much wider base of clients. I think private debt being where it is, is indicative of the rise of private debt as an asset class and its relevance in a portfolio today versus perhaps in the past when debt returns were nowhere close to equity returns. Um, and also what interested me was hybrid capital. We've spoken quite a bit about hybrid capital, this sort of investing in mares and PREF and what we refer to as a debt-led approach to private equity investing, which anecdotally in this market might get you higher returns than straight equity investing. And I think that the relative low uptake for hybrid capital, in my mind, represents opportunity. Because in this market, you know, like go three years back, the difference between return on debt and return on equity was huge. There was this massive dis you know, disparity between the two. Now, you're almost getting into this world where as interest rates go up, like returns on debt and returns on equity start to compress and converge is probably the better word. Um, and I think in that context, investing in deals where you sort of mares pref you've got a high return and the potential for equity upside uh, but, but where you're not the first to lose is quite interesting um, and so those those were the two big things at least from my side that jumped out um, and crypto i mean we didn't even put crypto on the list and two people put it in the other column or three people put it in the other column which i thought was quite interesting was this before ftx or afterwards <laughs> admittedly it was after surprisingly Oh, really? Jeez, you know, there we have it. Interesting. Maybe it was a distressed debt play. You know, we're talking private debt and how it, how interesting it is. Maybe it's a distressed debt play there. I mean, do you know, I think the next question in, in, in the survey that you guys had was in terms of asset allocation. And again, I'll come at this because from a macro perspective, it's, it's important to me, right? So asset allocation to alternatives in a client's overall portfolio. Now, again, sensitive to the differences between an institutional space and a private client space. But I think, yes, it's a trend we've seen escalating over time. Did the results here surprise you and maybe run us through what those results showed you? Uh, for me, it was certainly quite interesting. And again, maybe symptomatic of a change of flavor and risk appetite in the market. Yeah, so Mo, the averages sort of statistically came there was sort of a, a widespread uh, disparity between the responses here, but I'd say that by and large, and when we did the survey, we didn't give, we didn't ask people for exact numbers of the allocations. So the question was of an overall investment portfolio, what percentage allocation is in alternatives? And although the answers were a bit everywhere, by by far the largest was sort of either in the, I'd say, ten to fifteen percent bucket or in the 15 to sort of 25 percent bucket with the the single largest amount of responses coming at 20 percent and i mean that that actually surprised me to the upside to be honest because i didn't think that client portfolios were that heavily allocated to alternatives and i think part of it might be my point around the fact that we're talking to people who already know about alternatives so there, there might be a little bit of an element of if you'd spoken to people who didn't know westbrook they might give you a lower number. What was what was more interesting to me than that was that later on we asked wealth managers what their plan was as regards their use of alternatives going uh, going forward. Do you plan to increase allocations to alternatives, keep them at the same level or decrease? And 0% said they wanted to decrease the allocations to alternatives. About 39% said they'd like to keep them where they are. And 61% have the intention to increase the allocation to alternatives going forward. And these are people who already, as I've just mentioned, use alternatives quite a bit. And so that I thought was very interesting. And that was positive to me in the sense that it does indicate 
that I think the wider investment market in South Africa is starting to appreciate the value of including alternatives in a bigger, more diversified investment portfolio. I mean, if I can comment on that, and Dino, obviously anyone listening is going to say, you know, Dino's talking his book on alternatives, which you are. But what I can certainly say as an independent here is it all makes a lot of sense in this environment. Everything we've talked about with you guys around getting more of a debt return with a sort of equity kicker, as opposed to chasing pure equity, it just makes a world of sense where yields have gone recently, the relative lack of correlation, being a little bit closer to the asset, understanding what's going on. So it's good to see this coming through from the wealth managers as well, because for what it's worth, I think it's I think it's right. I mean, I equally am not a capital allocation specialist by any stretch, but a lot of these answers do actually make a world of sense. And another one that made a lot of sense to me, and maybe if we, you know, we're not asking during load shedding, maybe it would look slightly different, but it is what it is. And this is the local versus offshore split, specifically within alternatives now. So this is not the wealth managers saying how much of the total portfolio is local or offshore. This is their, of their alternatives allocation, how much is offshore. And uh, it was a pretty... I think of all the answers, I think this one had the strongest answer, didn't it? Mm. Look, I mean, so the answer was we only gave brackets up to 60% and above. Maybe in hindsight, we should have done all the way up to 100%. Um, but the overwhelming answer here was 60% and above is allocated offshore in, in alternatives. A point on that, Coast, is just remember that alternatives by their definition, because they're not really accessible through pension, provident, RA structures in South Africa. Uh, you're talking about money outside of sort of that space, right? And therefore, it is a little bit more discretionary. Um, and there is more ability for clients to offshore their capital and do with it what they want, whereas you're subject to Reg 28 uh, in the other environments. So it, I think it is natural that you would see a higher offshore allocation through fully discretionary cash. Even though you have exchange control, you can take 10, 11 million rand out realistically a year the moment if you get the right approvals um so so this was the answer i suppose that didn't that didn't surprise me if i talk to our wealth uh, base i'd say in general they are somewhere between 80 percent 90 percent 100 percent offshore is is where many people would tell you is the allocation uh, methodology going forward what i did think though when i read this was is there not an opportunity for local yeah I, uh, I think there is for what it's worth, but I think there's always opportunity in every country. You've just got to know where to look ultimately. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it comes down to expertise and familiarity and managing the risks, of which we know there are many. But uh, I, I think the point you make about regulatory money is right. If you can get other money outside of the, the amount, you know, you're forced in a regulatory setting to have your money in South Africa, whether it's through your pension fund or whatever, a big proportion is going to be here. So when you're investing outside of that, it makes a lot of sense that you would want an offshore skew just to diversify the money. I mean, that definitely does tie up. Yeah, and I think as someone who sits who sits abroad right now, you know, I can certainly relate with with that answer specifically. And to to Ghost's point around familiarity with markets, you know, it's something that we've discussed with you guys at Westbrook time and time again. You've got boots on the ground. You've got an office out in the UK. You've got an office out in, in the US. I mean, Dino, you just came back from the US. So I think that's testament to the fact that as investors are looking for that offshore exposure, they're gonna to wanna to partner with someone who's actually got boots on the ground and some track record, some experience. I wanna actually pick up on a question that honestly surprised me a little bit. And we know Ghost and I differ a little bit with regards to our views on, on real estate. So I'm gonna come at this from the real estate question because real estate came out as a lot less popular than I would have expected. And 
you know, maybe let's unpack that. I don't know if you have any further insight on that. My perception, at least, is that maybe a lot of people do their real estate investing outside of kind of partnering with the likes of a partner like a Westbrook, maybe. Maybe they're just gone and they bought a property themselves abroad. Uh, what does that look like? I like real estate as a sector over the long term through the cycle. Uh, maybe with a caveat, maybe then that offshore exposure is a little bit better. But real estate's nuanced. You know, are you talking residential? Are you talking commercial? Are you talking industrial? So, you know, Dino, what's your insights? That one surprised me. What's your view on that that real estate question uh, in terms of context? I was also I was surprised, and I was not surprised, Mo. I was surprised on the the first question, which was how you know which alternatives do you use for your clients? Real estate was right down towards the bottom in terms of popularity. The later question, which we haven't yet discussed, was which alternative classes or asset classes are you planning on being overweight going forward? Um, unsurprisingly, private debt and, and hedge funds were the two that were the most popular. Structured products a little bit lower probably makes sense because there's a little bit of exposure to equity movements in structured products. Um, real estate did not get one single response. Um, now, so a couple thoughts here. First of all, you know, most people own a home. So by, by definition, actually, most people are alternative uh, alternative investors in real estate anyway. Um, the question, I mean, and this is pure speculation, and perhaps this is something for us to investigate further, is that the question was how much of your alternatives allocation is in real estate. And I do suspect that much of the listed equity allocation that clients have will be in REITs and real estate stocks. Um, and so to further go into real estate and alternatives might represent clients. Remember, remember you're talking about an overall balanced investment portfolio where we're now speaking about one element, right? So you, you, you do also need to just weigh up your overall exposure to a particular sector going forward. What is interesting, though, about the fact that not anyone per the survey we did plans to be, you know, to, to be particularly excited about direct real estate going forward for me is that is your point, Mo. I mean, it makes sense, right? Interest rates are going up, therefore cost of debt's going up, which means cap rates on property should increase. In English, what that means is that property valuations will go down because the availability of debt to acquire those properties is lower. However, there is actually a counter argument, which is that, you know, real estate and specifically direct real estate can actually be a very good uh, inflation hedge asset class because yes, property prices decline or cap rates go up, but Properties are generally valued based on a cap rate on their ability to generate income. And as inflation goes up, so too the property's ability to generate more revenue also goes up. And so the debate everybody has in real estate is which is the more powerful force? Is the more powerful force the ability of the property to fetch escalations and therefore increase value that way? Now that takes time. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe it's a timing thing. Whereas cap rates, capitalization rates, can be a little bit more sensitive um, in the sense that as soon as interest rates go up, people get nervous and, and therefore value properties differently. What we've seen on the market is in the market, both in the US where I was now and, and in the UK where we operate quite extensively as well, is more that in the beginning phases of this, of this increasing interest rate cycle, what you tend to see in the real estate markets is not cap rates moving up significantly, but rather a, a, a drying up of liquidity. Because what happens is the gap between buyers' expectations of the good deals they can get and sellers' expectation of pricing kind of widens, and so therefore deals just don't conclude. And at least that's been our, our high-level, I mean, remember, real estate's a very big asset class, but that's been our high-level 
perception of the market so far. It's been my personal lived experience for the past month trying to uh, move house. We sold ours quickly, made two offers on other houses, both rejected because the sellers just, you know, it doesn't matter how often I try to explain what their houses will be worth if they don't sell by January. Anyway, funnily enough, both those asking prices have come down pretty hard. Uh, one of them almost at the number that I offered and they turned down. So, I mean, go figure. To your point, you know, you need buyers and sellers to meet in order for there to be a market. And I, I was quite surprised at the 0% on real estate because, you know, Mo's implying I've got no interest in property. I just like buying things at the right price. So, when property is trading at below its nav and you're buying it on a nice yield, then great. You know, why on earth not? And when industrial property funds were trading at 1.3 times book, stay away. Now they're at 0.9 times book. Now it's interesting, you know. So I guess like everything in this world, property is is timing ultimately. And that almost comes through in, uh, kind of comes through in one of the other questions. And I think there's really only two we haven't dealt with because we've jumped around a bit, which is fine. And one of them was around, you know, the investment priority for these wealth managers, which was either yield, capital growth or both. And everyone wants their cake and wants to eat it, but then they don't want to buy property. So I, I, I just found that quite interesting actually, because property is one of the asset classes that actually does both in theory. Mm. Look, Ghost, I mean, 87% of the people who responded to the survey said both. And to me, I, I was surprised when I saw that because I, my gut feel was that we would have seen a lot more yield oriented investors at the moment. But then I thought about it more deeply. And again, it's the same point that I made earlier around good portfolio construction. You know, good portfolio construction does not imply one or the other. And this is something I say to clients so often. You know, everything in life is a trade-off, right? In this current market, equities are going down. Do you want to be overweight equities? Depends, right? If you think equities are now cheap, maybe you should be in listed equities. But there is also the chance that they could go down further, you know, which is my personal view on life. And so I think it, it, private debt another example, right? Private debt with Westbrook can get you more than double the return that you can get in an equivalent fixed income product uh, or, or a bond fund without the volatility. Does that mean that you should put all of your low risk investment into private debt? No, I don't think so. Why? Because there are different asset classes with slightly you know, subtle nuances around the risks, but also there's pros and cons. And the biggest trade-off with private debt in the unlisted space is that you're locked in for a period of time. Whereas if you're invested in something like a bond fund, you can pull your money out more quickly. And what's the downside to that? You have a mark-to-market adjustment when interest rates move. You don't have that in private debt. So, so everything in life is a trade-off. And perhaps that's what the wealth management base was saying here, guys, is that we're not not looking for growth but maybe we'll be underweight growth from favor of yield into the future, but we still need both. Total return, that's the name of the game, the combination of the two. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I just wanna wrap the last one, just in the interest of time. There was the last and probably one of the more relevant ones to, to our listeners, because we always say how Magic Markets is about education. It's about understanding and sharing those ideas. There was a question there with regards to, do clients understand what they're invested in and the benefits? Uh, and again, so sensitive to Dino's point around the fact that we are looking at a subset of individuals uh, that are arguably already in the space. But that for me was relatively an even split. You know, I was expecting slightly more of a positive answer there. Um, Dino, maybe let's unpack that one because I think that's part of why we're having this discussion as well. So we've tried to 
bring some of these concepts to our listeners. You know, tell them what is hybrid capital. Tell them what private equity is. Tell them what the entire capital stack is and how those can all form very important building blocks in an overall diversified portfolio. So you know, what are your views on that? What I would call slightly or relatively even split in terms of people truly understanding what happens in this alternative space. So, I mean, reading this question again and unpacking it, perhaps we asked the wrong question. Maybe the question, and I'll read you the question we asked is, do your clients understand the nature and risks of the alternatives that they're invested in, as well as the benefits? And perhaps the question, uh, you know, the, the question should have been of those clients that you have discussed alternatives with and that have elected to invest on a non-discretionary mandate, do they understand what they've invested in and the benefits? Because I think I think you, you one would expect that of clients who have invested, that the answer would be higher. And those that either have given the choice of where to invest to their wealth manager or haven't invested, the answer to be lower. But I think what I will say is this, I expected this answer to be not what you thought. No, I thought that a lot of people would say no. Why? Because alternatives are inherently incredibly complex and they are incredibly opaque. But but the question to the corollary is also true. I mean, how many investors in NASPERS do you think truly understand the risks and operations associated with the business of that size? Uh, I, I would hazard a guess not many because it's so big and so complex. And so by definition in investing, there is like an implied element of trust. In the case of alternatives, there's an implied element of faith in the skill and the competence and the track record of a manager. Uh, I suppose by, you know, t by extension, that same principle is true in a listed entity of the board of directors, the management team, um, and the regulators surrounding it. So, you know, anything about investing is, is, is complex. I suppose complexity is one of the reasons you can get higher returns than the level of risk that you need to take sometimes. Not everyone understands complexity. That's why it's an imperfect market. Um, but certainly, I think uh, the, the, the number here should be very high with people who know alternatives. But I think generally is actually much lower than the 42% the who said yes. Uh, I think that number is probably lower in, 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 in a wider sample of people who have maybe never come across Westbrook in the past. Yeah, it's very interesting, Dean. I think next time you need to say, of your clients who listen to Magic Markets, how many of them understand alternatives? And hopefully we can aim for 100%. That's got to be the goal. I think uh, I think that's about all we have time for this week. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. I always love a good survey. I've done a couple of them in Ghostmail before. You always learn stuff. You always get answers that you expect and you always get answers that surprise you. So I think it's been much the same process here. For, so thank you for facilitating this with your sort of a wealth manager base. I think it's been awesome. Lots to learn from. I would encourage our listeners to go back, find the older Westbrook shows, go and learn about these different asset classes. There is so much to learn. And uh, Dino, we'll look forward to having the Westbrook team back in a few weeks' time and unpacking another element of uh, alternatives. Yeah, thank you, Ghost. Thank you, Mo. And just the last point from my side, what I will say, for those of you listening to the podcast that have made it the 29 minutes to this point, um, if you have questions, I mean, I think that's also one of the things that we're committed to doing here uh, on on this particular platform is to to help address them. And I think it's always interesting to debate points that the listeners have actually raised. And so, uh, you know, I think you know how to get hold of the guys by now. But to the extent that you do have questions, you should please ask them, ask me. Uh, we'd love to to have some of those debates in future podcasts uh, going forward. 
Yeah, thanks. You know, I think that's where we've got to leave it. And to, to our listeners, you've heard it. Uh, the channel's open. Send us the questions. Send them directly to the team at Westbrook. We know they're very approachable and they always avail their time off this show. So uh, thanks again, Dino. To our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this. Until next week, same time, same place. Cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.